Chronicles chapter 24, Second Chronicles chapter 24, and uh, you know I'm very happy uh, that Tim, uh, this is the second time in a row where he showed that he looked at what I was going to preach at, preach on when I came here. And, uh, of course, he gets the bulletin information, but, you know, even if you don't get the bulletin information, you know what I'm going to preach on the next time pretty well. You know it's going to be the next thing in order out of Second Kings. We're going through Second Kings chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and you can take up where we left off the last time and study a little bit ahead of time, which would be nice of what we're going to go over the next time. And of course, that's the beauty of going through a book of the Bible. You know what's coming next, and you can look ahead. So anyway, here we have Second Chronicles, though. Uh, we're, we're going through Second Kings, as you know, but Second Chronicles is a parallel passage to Second Kings, and we're going to look at Second Chronicles for a little bit here, but then we're going to go back to Second Kings. So here we have Second Chronicles, chapter 24. And down to verse 17, 17. Second Chronicles 24, 17. This is a parallel passage. Now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. Then the king hearkened unto them. And they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their trespass. Let's bow in prayer, O Lord, forgive us of our sin. Bless in our study of thy word, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So here we have uh, the king here, and which king is this? This is the king where we left off in Second Kings, and this is King Joash. Do you remember anything about Joash? Well, we had two sermons on Joash, we had one about how Jehoiada, the high priest, set up a revolution to set Joash on the throne. You know, I might say for a moment, you know, these kings back here in Kings and Chronicles, they have a lot of difficult names, that is to be sure. And it's hard to keep them straight, and, and uh, we're going to see that especially this morning. But, you know, I went to... Uh, a ball game this uh, a week ago, the, the Bowie Bay Sox nearby here, because I happened to get some tickets from the auction at my daughter's Christian school. But anyway, I went there, but you know, those ball players there, half of them are Spanish, and they have some pretty difficult names. And you know, people that are baseball fans or whatever, they can keep those names straight. They don't have any problem with them. And if we really want to, we can keep these names straight, too. So anyway, here we have Joash. Joash is the king. He was put on the throne when he was a child by Jehoiada. He had been saved from being murdered. He was put on the throne, and he did good during the days of Jehoiada the high priest. But then when Jehoiada died, that's where we pick up right here. And Joash also, he had the Joash chest where they were collecting offerings to repair the temple. And so he did some good things. But after Jehoiada the high priest died, 
Then the princes came to him and wanted him to go in the ways of the heathen. They wanted him to go to the groves and the idols. And they went there. And today the title of my message is The Cycle of Sin. And all through our lives, all through the Bible, all through the history of Israel, there's always the cycle of sin. What is that cycle? Well, right here you have the first and second steps in that cycle. At the top of the circle, the people fall into sin. That's what we have here. And then you go around the circle a little bit, and what happens as a result of them falling into sin? Well, they get judgment from the Lord and wrath from the Lord. And of course, these things happen in our own lives from day to day. And then when we get some wrath from the Lord, some punishment, when Israel did, then it goes to the third step here in that circle, is the people and we turn back to the Lord. And then the fourth step is God uh, saves us, prospers us, and we're in good shape again, and everything's fine. And then we go back up to the top, after everything's good and fine, we go back into sin. And Israel kept doing that over and over and over again. And that's the cycle of sin, and we see it in our passages today. And so here we have, keep going here. We had uh, the groves and idols, and wrath came upon them, verse 19. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done unto him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, The Lord look upon it and require it. By the way, we're in Second Chronicles chapter 24. I just finished reading verse 22, 2 Chronicles 24, 22. But anyway, here we have Joash, the guy who was led in the right way by Jehoiada, the high priest. He went astray. And so God just didn't leave him in his sin, though. He sent prophets to him. And what was the message of the prophets? The message was, you have all these problems because you have turned from the Lord. And you need to turn back to the Lord. But did the people want to hear that? No, they didn't want to hear that. They never want to hear that. And so the prophets were never very popular people. And they used to get stoned. And their main job was to tell people what they did not want to hear. And what are people telling, what are the preachers telling people in churches today? Mainly what people want to hear. What they want to hear, not what they need to hear. What was the prophet telling them? The prophet was telling them what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And it's it's like the doctor. You know, if you have a disease, is the doctor going to talk to you about how you need to take vitamins? 
or you have some big problem, he's going to talk to you about how you need to brush your teeth and things like that. Well, you know, those are good things. We need to take our vitamins, maybe. We need to brush our teeth. We need to do those things. But that's not the urgent need of the hour. They need to, the doctor needs to deal with the disease and the problem and how to get rid of that disease and problem. Well, you know, we have lots of churches out there today where they think they should tell people about the vitamins and about brushing their teeth and all those things. All those nice things in and of themselves, comforting messages, but they don't tell them about what they really need. They need to turn from sin. They need the truths of God's word. And so anyway, God sent these prophets to them. And he didn't send them with messages of comfort, but he sent them with messages that they needed to turn back to the Lord. And so finally, verse 20, the sons of, of Jehoiada, they were prophets. And here we have Zechariah, his son. And Tim already mentioned this about Zechariah because he had looked ahead. But anyway, Zechariah was the son of Jehoiada, the guy who had saved Joash the king. And so the son of the guy that saved him, Zechariah, stood up and he preached to the people and he said, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. And the people definitely didn't want to hear that. The king in particular didn't want to hear that, Joash. And so they got a conspiracy together and they stoned and killed Zechariah. And what was particularly heinous about this crime of stoning Zechariah was Zechariah was the son of Jehoiada to whom uh, Joash owed everything. Joash owed his life to Jehoiada, he he owed his crown to Jehoiada, he he owed his teaching to Jehoiada, and then after Jehoiada dies, he kills, and we're told it's not just one son, he killed the sons of Jehoiada, because they told him what he didn't want to hear. And so we have that pointed out right here, and as I say Time and time again, the beauty of this history, you know, there's a lot of history, and history is very important, but history that's in the Bible is inspired. And it gives us what God has to say about things, what God has to think about things in history. We don't have to wonder. And then it says here in verse 22, Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, the Lord, look upon it and require it. Was Joash grateful for what had been done for him? No, he wasn't grateful. He had a spirit of entitlement. You know, today we're full in the United States of the spirit of entitlement. We are entitled to things. And the government owes us everything, and we're owed everything by everybody else, and we're entitled to it. Well, Joash had that same spirit, that same spirit. He was entitled to be king. He was entitled to do whatever he wanted to do, and he stoned the son of Jehoiada. Then we go on here about Joash. 
verse 23. And it came to pass at the end of the year that the hosts of Syria came up against him and they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all the spoil of them unto the king of Damascus. So the Syrians, their big enemy at this point, came up and conquered them. And it's really interesting in this verse, it says, who did they destroy? They destroyed the princes there in Israel and in Judah. And who was it that Joash had listened to when he departed from the Lord? He had listened to these very same princes. And God's punishment came down right upon him. And then it tells us about how he was defeated. Verse 24. For the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men, and the Lord delivered a very great host into their hand. Because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers, so they executed judgment against Joash. And when they were departed from him, for they left him in great diseases, his own servants conspired against him for the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest, and slew him on his bed, and he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they buried him not in the sepulcher of the kings. So here we have the end of Joash, and the Syrians come in, attack, and what's really interesting here is usually in the Bible, the, the Israel comes with a few men and chases off big heathen armies. Remember Gideon with 300 against all the, the hosts against him. And all that you see many times that God favors a small group to destroy a big number of troops. And right here it goes the opposite way with Judah. Because of Joash's sin, Syria came in with a small group of soldiers and defeated a big army of Joash. Of course, in Ecclesiastes, we're told that the battle is not always to the strong. And, uh, you know, riches are not always to men of understanding. And, uh, you know, the thing is, all through history, you can see that small armies can defeat big ones. And why is that? Because of the morale, because of fear coming upon the big army. What's going on in Ukraine right now? Well, they have a smaller Ukrainian force defeating the Russian force. And uh, you see that all through history. Alexander the Great, he went up against the Persians with a small army and defeated a really big one. And uh, uh, you saw that. But the thing is, is all of a sudden fear can come into the heart of the commander. Fear can come into the hearts of the soldiers. And it makes all the difference between victory and defeat. Well, anyway, the Syrians came with a small group of soldiers, and the Lord delivered a very great host. Well, after Joash was in great diseases, we're told, he was killed upon his bed by his servants. And we're told in the inspired history right here, why was he killed? Why did God have him killed? It says, for the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest. It tells us exactly that. Does God send you to the basement when you're bad? Yes, he does. And he does bring punishment upon sin. 
And that's what we have right here. And it's interesting with his burial here is that I've mentioned a million times and I'll mention a million times more that I believe that burial is important as opposed to cremation. And it's just over and over and over and over in the Bible about burial. Is that just an accident? No, that's, that's, that's in keeping with the resurrection. And they always talk about burying the kings, burying this, burying that person, whether they buried him or not. And then it makes a big point about where they buried him. And here they buried uh, Joash not with the kings because of his killing of uh, Zechariah and the others and his turning away from the Lord. Well, now let's go back to 2 Kings, where we're normally at. 2 Kings, and let's go back there to 2 Kings chapter 12. 2 Kings chapter 12, 2 Kings chapter 12, and verse 17. 2 Kings chapter 12, and verse 17. Then, and now we're still back here with the history of Joash. Then Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it, and Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Joash, king of Judah, took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own hallowed things and all the gold that was found in in the treasures of the house of the Lord and in the king's house, and sent it to Haziel, king of Syria, and he went away from him, from Jerusalem. And the rest of the acts... And the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And then it goes on to tell about how his servants killed him, and he was not buried with the kings, but he was buried. Well, so here we have back here in 2 Kings, we have that continuing uh, fight with the Syrians. And I think this is actually a little bit before what we saw in Chronicles. And so a little bit before the Syrians came up, so what was Joash's solution? Did Joash seek God? Did he seek God to deliver him from the Syrians? No, he didn't. He sought to pay off the Syrians. And he took all the treasures of the temple, all the treasures of the king's house, all the silver and gold, and sent it off to the king of Syria. And the king of Syria did go away for a little while, but then he came back right before uh, Joash dies. Well, you know, that's a problem when we look to men to save us instead of looking to God. And that's what uh, Joash did. You know, another king of Judah's history, Asa, had that problem. Asa looked to men and not to God. He was reproved by it for it. And he's reproved for sending off treasures off to the enemy to to buy them off. And you know, you could say, well, you know, God supplied him with all those treasures so that he could be saved. Well, that's kind of a roundabout way there. The thing is, God wants us to seek him directly and not to pay some men to take care of us. And I think about that with, that has some application to insurance and things like that. And the government is that, you know, uh, who are we looking to to take care of us? 
Are we looking to insurance, to the government, or are we looking to the Lord? And we want to be looking to the Lord. And so anyway, the thing is, uh, Joash, again, he was killed by his servants. That's always a problem with great men and kings, is the people around them. And they are the biggest danger to them. The people that are right around them. In the history of Rome, it was always the Praetorian Guard that was always killing off the Caesars. And, you know, uh, with uh, Caesar being killed, it was Brutus, right, the guy close to him. And that's always a threat, the people close by, and that's what the, we have here with the servants who rose up and killed him. And that's why with, with powerful people, they're very concerned with loyalty among their close circle. They're very concerned with that. And uh, I, I was involved with a prominent preacher in days gone by, and he was very concerned with whether people around him were loyal to him. And when he came to the conclusion that you weren't loyal, he would get rid of you. But if you were loyal, he could overlook all kinds of really bad stuff. But he could overlook it because you were loyal. And so anyway, uh, Joash here didn't have the loyal servants, and they killed him. And then we come to our uh, responsive reading that we had earlier, so we won't read the whole thing. But we're done with Joash. And it is a little confusing here because we've got some similar names. Not only do we have Joash here, but then we have here Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz is king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Joash that we've been looking at, it was in the southern kingdom, Judah. And keep that in mind always, there's Judah, the southern kingdom, Israel, the northern kingdom. And anyway, Judah had Joash. Here we have the northern kingdom with Jehoahaz. It's kind of like keeping track of the Orioles and the Phillies. Who's playing for the Phillies and who's playing for the Orioles? Well, anyway, we have here Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz in the north, and he comes on the scene here, and here we have that cycle of sin again in verse 2. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, you don't have to wonder about it. Did he, was he evil or not? No, the Bible has the inspired history. He did that which was evil. And then it says he followed the sins. This is something I want to focus on this morning. The sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Now that's given over and over and over again through Kings and Chronicles. This sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And that goes back to the sin when the kingdom split into Israel and Judah after the death of Solomon. And the guy in the north, Jeroboam, he decided to make his golden calves at Dan and Bethel and have everybody go up and worship the golden calves. Well, that sin became a sin to Israel, and they kept on with that sin for 200 years. And they never went away from that sin. And everybody was following that sin of those golden calves and going there to worship. And they never got rid of it. And so this cycle of sin kept on going. So they, he, uh, here we have Jehoahaz. He was evil. He had the sins of Jeroboam. 
In verse 3, we have the second step, remember, in the cycle of sin. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he delivered them into the hand of their enemies. Again. And then you go down to the next verse, verse 4. Well, there we have the third step in the cycle with Jehoahaz. And Jehoahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel. And so Jehoahaz wasn't totally bad. He did come back to the Lord a little bit. And he did come back to the Lord here, that third step in the cycle of sin. And so when he came back to the Lord, what's the fourth step in the cycle of sin? Well, God's going to deliver him. And that's verse 5. And the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians. Who was this savior? We really don't know. His name is not given. He's a nameless savior, probably a general of the host. It doesn't seem that that was the king. And, you know, Israel had had many saviors. They had Gideon. They had Samson. They had all the judges. They had Deborah and Barak. They had all that. And here God gave them another savior to save them as that cycle of sin went around. But after they came back to the Lord, what did they do? Well, verse 6 here, Nevertheless, They departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked therein. And there remained the grove also in Samaria. And so they went through the whole cycle. The Lord blessed them again, but they still kept on with that sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel a sin with the golden calves. And then verse 7, neither did he leave, this is talking about the Syrians, neither did he leave to Jehoahaz, but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by threshing. Joash ended up that way, Jehoahaz ended up that way, all torn up by the enemy. And then verse 8, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did in his might are not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. That's talking about 1 and 2 Chronicles. And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. Again, always buried. And Joash's son reigned in his stead. So we have that cycle of sin. They keep on going back to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And then let's go on to verse 10. We leave Jehoahaz. In the 30 and 7th year of Joash, king of Judah, began Jehoash. See, these names are pretty, pretty similar here. You got Joash, Jehoahaz, and now we got Jehoash. And in the 30 and 7th year, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, reigned 16 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, for he walked therein. Once again, the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And the rest of the acts of Joash, or Jehoash actually, and all that he did and his might wherewith, wherewith he fought against the Amaziah king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now, I want to go back to that sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had the golden calves. 
For 200 years, they had all been going to worship at the golden calves. And you know, everybody was doing it. And they had been doing it for 200 years. So wasn't it accepted good now? Because everybody was doing it and they'd been doing it forever? I mean, anybody who didn't do it then was really out of it. And they were really in the splinter fringe group if they didn't go up there and worship at the golden calves. Because everybody was doing it. And it seemed like it was great and everybody was doing it. And fire didn't come down from heaven when they did it. But it was not right. and It was not good. And God saw it every time they did it. And God was going to reward them for it. Well, what do you think I'm going to make application of that to? Well, the church today. The church today. And I just want to talk, just a good application of this is the contemporary church today. The contemporary church with the contemporary music and all that stuff. And you know, you say, why are you talking about that? That's what everybody does. And that's where all the crowds go. And it's accepting. It's been going on for 50 years now. Everybody does it. But is it good? Is it good? And of course, uh, I've had many discussions with my kids about this. Of course, they're all in contemporary churches. But anyway, the thing is, is that uh, <laughs> the thing is, they, they, they came to me and they say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with contemporary music? What's wrong with praising the Lord that way? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with that? Well, and of course then they want an answer that's in three words or less. Well, it's a little difficult. It's going to take a while to go through what's wrong with that. And you know, there is something wrong with that. And I just want to give a little bit of uh, things about what's wrong with that contemporary music scene, contemporary churches, even though everybody's doing it, and everybody has always been doing it, seems like. But you know, that's not how the church has always done it. The church over centuries and centuries didn't have those things. They had the hymns that we sing today. So what is wrong with the contemporary music, contemporary scene? It's all accepted. That everybody's going with. Well, number one, they don't worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. They worship him in the flesh to a great extent. And it, uh, we're told in John 4.24 to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the rock and roll music with its boom, 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 it appeals to the flesh. And even though it's all accepted, and then the second thing is, is that it doesn't use good doctrine a whole lot of the time. And in Brazil, in Brazil it's a lot worse than here, everybody uses contemporary music. All the fundamentalists, all, everybody, you can't hardly find a church anywhere down there that doesn't use it. And so we sat through a lot of it there in, in Brazil. And, of course, I believe that you shouldn't just sit home and not go to church. You ought to go to church where the best place to go to church is. And anyway, but the thing is, is it doesn't have good doctrine a lot of it. And we're supposed to have good doctrine in our worship. And they, they have a lot of stuff that's teaching doctrines, which are the precepts of men. 
which the Bible talks about. And then number three, what's wrong with it? It's, it's, it's not uh, in holiness. In holiness. We're supposed to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Well, you know, they want to have it just like the world. You know, they have their worship teams up there. And the worship team looks just like a rock and roll band. Looks just like it with the guitarists, the drummers, the, the whole nine yards. And it sounds like a rock and roll band. You know, not, not all music is suitable for worship. Even though everybody's doing it. And uh, the fourth thing, it needs to be reverent. We need to be reverent in our worship. We need to serve the Lord agreeably with, with reverence and piety. We need to serve him with that, with reverence. Hebrews 12. And, you know, I sat in those song, uh, contemporary music things, and uh, they'd have the contemporary songs were like love songs. And like you're singing a love song to Jesus. And I want to smell your perfume. I want to touch you. And all that thing, it's not very reverent. And then you go on, is is that, you know, that the worship is supposed to be humbly falling down before the Lord, not jumping around and celebrating. That's different. Celebration is different than worship. What's wrong with it, even though everybody's doing it? And then we're supposed to do our worship simply, not with vain repetitions. And, of course, they have the vain repetitions. They're, they're uh, seven eleven choruses, seven words repeated 11 times. You know, I just repeat the same thing over and over and over and over again. And why do they do that? Well, it's to get people in the mood. It's just like when I went to a Pentecostal Bible study when I got, was in the, got out of the Air Force, and they were there trying to speak in tongues, and they were going, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And that's getting yourself worked up. But we're supposed to worship the Lord simply, without vain repetitions. And then finally, we're supposed to be looking unto Jesus, and not looking under the worship team, not looking under the pastor, because it was just talked about in Sunday school, about how people follow the pastor around. And the pastor encourages that. But you know, we're supposed to be looking unto Jesus, looking unto him. And, you know, why do we need a worship team up there? I mean, why do we need all that? And then I've, I've watched those worship teams. They get up there and lead the service. And then when they're done, they're gone. Or they're, they're, they're not paying attention at all to, the, to what's going on with the sermon and whatever. And you know, the thing is, is that what's wrong with that? There's plenty wrong with that. Does God accept all that just because everybody's doing it? Don't you know that that's the way things are today? That's the way things are. That's how the world is today. Well, what about with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? That's how it was for 200 years. They went to the golden calves, but God... He kept on repeating over and over again, they departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And people, some of you are saying, saying, why do I even bother talking about that? Because it's all accepted, don't you know? But, and why do you mention it again and again? Because I don't believe it's really very acceptable to God. I mean, Christians can do it. 
They can do it, but they'd be a lot better off if they didn't. If they got rid of that that uh, uh, thing that is not really all that pleasing to God. And we need to try to worship God in the beauty of holiness and spirit and truth, looking unto Jesus. Let's bow in prayer. O Lord, we just thank thee for thy goodness unto us. We thank thee for thy word. We pray that all might be according to thy word that was said here this morning. And O Lord, we pray that our worship be acceptable in thy sight. In Jesus' name, amen.